I owe everything to George Bailey. Help him, dear father. Joseph, Jesus, and Mary, help my friend, Mr. Bailey. Help my son, George, tonight. He never thinks about himself, God. That's why he's in trouble. George is a good guy. Give him a break, God. I love him, dear Lord. Watch over him tonight. Please, God. Something's the matter with Daddy. Please bring Daddy back. Hello, Joseph. Trouble? Looks like we'll have to send someone down. A lot of people asking for help for a man named George Bailey. George Bailey? Yes, tonight's his crucial night, you're right. We'll have to send someone down immediately. Whose turn is it? That's why I came to see you, sir. It's a clockmaker's turn again. Oh, Clarence hasn't got his wings yet, has he? We've passed him up right along. Because, you know, sir, he's got the IQ of a rabbit. Yes, but he's got the faith of a child. Simple. Joseph, send for Clarence. You sent for me, sir? Yes, Clarence. A man down on earth needs our help. Splendid. Is he sick? No, worse. He's discouraged. At exactly 10.45 p.m. Earth time, that man will be thinking seriously of throwing away God's greatest gift. Oh, dear, dear, his life. Then I've only an hour to dress. What are they wearing now? You will spend that hour getting acquainted with George Bailey. Sir, if I should accomplish this mission, I mean... Uh, might I perhaps win my wings? I've been waiting for over 200 years now, sir, and people are beginning to talk. What's that book you've got there? Oh, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Clarence, you do a good job with George Bailey, and you'll get your wings. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Poor George. Sit down. Sit down? What do we... If you're going to help a man, you want to know something about him, don't you? Well, naturally, of course. Well, I... keep your eyes open. See the town? Where? I don't see a thing. Oh, I forgot. You haven't got your wings yet. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Film Gold, Episode 2. So this is the first film review proper. I'm absolutely delighted to have with me Scott Phipps. Some of you who may have migrated from my other podcast, Glass Onion on John Lennon, will know Scott. We've reviewed, uh, I think, both versions of the Imagine film. So, um, Scott, how are you? Good morning, mate. A pleasure to be on the almost inaugural episode of Film Gold. Almost. Thank you for inviting me, mate. You're welcome. Yeah, when I thought of this film, I just knew you would jump at the chance, <laughs> and uh, I, I was motivated as well because I, you know, I'm still working pretty hard on Glass Onion, but uh, I just thought we'll get this one done for Christmas, and it would just be perfect. So, um, yeah. Scott, can you just tell us about your well, three, four, how many podcasts <laughs> have you got? Tell us about them. Oh, it have to be quick That's because the there are quite okay. a few, mate. I've been podcasting okay. now for nearly eight years. The initial one was, like yourself, I wanted to just start a movie-based podcast and it was literally just classic movies and it was a, a podcast called Stinking Paws, P-A-U-S-E and anybody that's seen The Planet of the Apes will get that reference immediately. 
and it was me and my friend Charlie. It was quite a lot younger than me, so it was sort of introducing Charlie to some of the classics. You know, it was educating him on some some Hollywood gold and, and not so gold movies. You know, and then that soon developed into a spin-off called Real Britannia, which I do with my friend Stephen and Tony occasionally, which is just basically British movies. Got a great love for all the old classic British stuff from carry-on movies to Ealing comedies to the kitchen sink dramas. You know, we're going to try and get you on board for a couple of the kitchen sink stuff as we do those mm. chronologically. There's a third podcast called Rainbow Valley, which is, I think, mm. where you found me, the 60s podcast that I do, which is more documentary-based. Yeah. I think you listened to the Brian Epstein double episode that I did. Yeah, I've since listened to a lot more of them. Yeah, love that show. It's, it's a lot of hard work. It is the passion project out of all of them. I made a rod for my own back with that because I was trying to get them out monthly, but to do them justice and some of the subjects and the subject matters that I'm sort of covering, you can't rush them out. So that's sort of been reduced to like a quarterly release now. It's just, you know, the news events, the hits, the headlines, the personalities the movies you know currently working on the making of zulu at the moment which mm-hmm. is my next one but you know there's been episodes on brian epstein which you listened to there was mm-hmm. one on martin luther king johnny cash at Folsom prison but then there was one on the jfk assassin you know it covers absolutely everything from the 60s mm-hmm. and finally for about the last year i've been very honored to have been asked to be a co-host on the official talking pictures tv podcast which is the nation's biggest archive tv and movie channel on freeview that one's an easy gig as well because most of the reviews are done by the listeners. It's just my job to piece them all together and, and chuck a bit of a, a link in between them all. So, yeah, very honoured to be part of that one as well at the moment. Fantastic. Now, also, I want to tell the listeners, in the show notes will be Scott's amazing review slash, uh, I guess it was almost an audio commentary, wasn't it, of this film yeah. that you did for Stinking Paws. I did like a Rainbow Valley treatment of it almost. It was the Sorry. making of interspersed with a bit of a commentary plus other bits as well yeah and you had these lovely um piano versions of carols going in the background and um mm. i mean to be honest if you'd already done a review of this you know like a two-man three-man review i probably wouldn't have asked you to do this thing today but i feel like because that was a commentary you're on your own yeah. this is more of a discussion so it's going to be a, kind of a nice compliment i don't think it's going to be oh, any, stepping on its toes any excuse to talk about this movie mate <laughs> all right excellent before we get into the details of the film, what's the main appeal of this film for you? Is it the inspirational aspect? Is it James Stewart? Or, it's, what ja- it's James Stewart, pretty right. much. My favourite okay. actor. Always okay. has been. And it's just the perfect Hollywood movie. It's the only way I can describe it. For anybody that knows anything of the golden age of Hollywood and the actors and the directors that were about at the time. I mean, this is pretty much post-war. This is the first movie made after coming out of the Air Force in 1946. That's right. So the world was changing and Stuart had matured a little bit since the pre-war roles that he'd taken. And this is the birth of the Jimmy Stewart that I think everybody remembers, that everybody knows and loves. You know, previous to this, when you look at things like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, he Mm. was that country boy, that persona, wasn't it? It was the old country hick that was trying to do good. Mm. Now we're getting the family man. We're getting the more mature roles that eventually lead to Harvey three or four years later. That's right. Amongst other things. So for me personally, it's, it's a Jimmy Stewart movie through and through, but also perfect christmas film as well even though christmas only takes up about 20 minutes of the entire movie it's still yeah <laughs> it's still yeah we're, we're getting movie. to that yeah. yeah i think it also sort of straddles a fine line between 
feel good and inspirational. I was trying to think of other films. If I think of a film like Love Actually, I don't know if you've seen that. I mean, yes, yes. it's a perfectly decent film. It obviously got some stellar actors there, but it just gets so cheesy. It's just like they really turn up the cheese factor towards the end. And I think this one, you know, I have a couple of issues with this film, which we'll kind of get to later. I mean, yeah. But on the whole, I absolutely love it. You know, I watched it again last night. Fantastic. And it's also got that, it's light and dark, isn't it? It's feel good, but it's also pretty damn dark as well. Yeah, um, but also you know? some of the darker characters are a bit cartoon-like as well, so you don't feel that there's that much menace sometimes because, say, for example, mm. when we get to him, we talk about Potter. Mm. He is your typical pantomime villain, almost. Yeah, he's a kind of he's the caricature evil banker. Yeah. And, um, funnily enough, I don't think in those days people thought of bankers like that, but I think since the <laughs> financial crisis... And the, I mean, there's tons of good videos on on the net about how banking works. And I kind of looked into it a few years ago and it's so absurd, you know, <laughs> but, but I don't think it matters because I don't think you need Potter to be a deep character full of nuance. I think it works perfectly because yeah, exactly. yeah. this film is about George Bailey at the end of the day, you know, it's dominated by James Stewart and everyone else in it is great. Some, again, some great actors, but he is just, he's the center of it. It's got some great themes as well. But, you know, the individual versus a community, success versus, you know, quote-unquote ordinary life. Something you just mentioned, actually. Is this a Christmas film? And what is a Christmas film? Go on. <laughs> Undeniably, yes. I mean, we, we, we mm. could get that old diehard argument here as well. It's, it's how you perceive a film and how you feel watching a film. I mean, for me, I watch Die Hard most Christmases. It's not a mm. Christmas. It just happens to be set at Christmas. I can't remember doing my research for this when I did the show originally, whether this was actually set out to be a Christmas movie or not. I'm pretty sure it was released around about Christmas time. So there probably was that intention there. I think you'd be a fool to say that it wasn't a Christmas movie, mate, to be honest, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, I was looking, um, there's all kinds of lists on the internet, and I looked at like top 50 Christmas films, and I was trying to think, what's the theme? And like you say, Die Hard's a good example I mean, plane train. I think plane trains and automobiles actually set at thanks, yeah. yeah, Thanksgiving rather than Christmas. Mm. But I, I think films use the Christmas thing essentially because it's when people get together, and you know, and often, you know, especially now families are so spread out. Often mm. they don't get together unless it's, it's Christmas or, um, unfortunately, weddings and funerals. Yeah, well, not weddings, unfortunately. You know what I mean? <laughs> God, I'm tying myself in knots. <laughs> Obviously, there's a religious aspect to this uh, film. Christmas was originally a religious festival, believe it or not. <laughs> we've forgotten that, mate. <laughs> yeah, we've forgotten yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, you've already answered the question I was going to ask you about James Stewart. Can you name a few other of his films that would be your favourites? Harvey's his? up there. I like the Anthony Mann westerns, mm. sort of the Naked Spur, two road together, Winchester 73, those. He, he plays a great western character, Jimmy Stewart. Flight of the Phoenix, I quite enjoy. That's that's a bit of a bank holiday movie, The Flight of the Phoenix. Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, another Western. But then if you go back, I mean, he won the Oscar for Philadelphia Story back in 1940, I think it was. Great yeah. movie with Cary Grant, another one of my favourites. You know, seeing the pair of them together in a movie. That's sort of a bit of a Christmas tradition, actually, watching The Philadelphia Story, even though it's got nothing at all to do with Christmas. That yeah. is another... Just at the right period in that classic, you know, golden age of Hollywood that I was talking about. If you, if you ever want to see something, you know, most people say, oh, yeah, well, you've got to watch Casablanca or Citizen Kane. Watch the Philadelphia story. You know, that screwball yeah. comedy with sharp writing, excellent direction, 
the relationship between Hepburn, Grant and Stewart is just magical in that movie. Mm. So, yeah, that's another favourite there. Do you remember when I was on your show, we did Mutiny on the Bounty, and I was, mm. we were talking about, um, yeah, in the old days, having the old VHS tapes, and there were, <laughs> originally we had like 10 films on video that we yeah. just recycled, Mutiny on the Bounty being one. Interesting, another one was High Society. Great film. So, so I grew up with High Society, and when I went back to the Philadelphia story, I thought, oh, God, I don't like this. You know, I much prefer High Society. <laughs> now I've changed. High Society is not as good as I think? remembered it being. I watched it last Christmas. Right. And... I think there are musicals out there that I prefer, but it's still a great. It's still a great thing. It's still got Frank Sinatra and Louis Armstrong mm. and Grace Kelly, the gorgeous Grace Kelly, is one of my favourite actresses. It hasn't aged as well as other musicals. And when you go back to Philadelphia Story and you you see that High Society literally lifts word for word some of the script. Oh sure, it's, yeah. You know, it's not an adaptation of Philadelphia Story. It's almost a complete carbon copy with a bit more music in it. You know, that's what it turns yeah. out to be. Yeah, Great songs as well. You know, Love as it. I've got older, I've got, come to appreciate all that Cole yeah. Porter and all oh, those. Yes. yes. The classic stuff, yeah. With Jimmy Stewart, yeah, the, one, the ones I'd probably say are my favourite. I mean, we, we reviewed Rope again on your show. I actually mm. thought it was a little bit miscast in that film, but Rear Window would be well oh, up there. Oh, of course. How can I forget the Hitchcock um, stuff? Yeah. Vertigo. Spirit of St. Louis, I haven't seen for years. I would same really here. like to see that again. Yeah, same here. Watched it yeah. many years ago. Yeah. Glenn Miller's story, you've just reminded me, which is another favourite. But yeah, an- Anatomy of a Murder, you were going to say. Anatomy of a Murder, yeah. Mm. It's a big favourite of mine. Yeah. All right, we should crack on. So, you'll be pleased to know we're not going scene by scene. <laughs> I would like to talk about the opening scene. Yeah. Because obviously this sets the template that we're in a fantasy. One of the things I do like about this film, again, we're, we're talking about fine line between, you know, feel good and uh, inspirational. There's also a fine line between sort of realism and fantasy, you know. Yes. And we know we're in a fantasy, like I say, but then a lot of the themes of the film are very real, you know, and it's easily identifiable. So it's kind of got those two things going for it. Mm. So obviously we've got Clarence. Uh, he's been waiting 200 years to get his wings. <laughs> so it sets it up. And then we go back, and I think George is 12 at the beginning. He is, yes. Yeah, 1919, um, I think, is the official year this starts. That's right, yeah. We get some sort of setups. We get most of the main characters are introduced. Obviously, um, Mary and Violet are also kids at this yep. point. And we get the scene where uh, George saves Harry's life when they're sledging. Yes, and gets the uh, the ear infection that renders him deaf in one ear for the rest of his life. That's right, yeah. Which, I was going to say, which proves to be a, a vital part of the plot as the more Absolutely. fantastical elements come into play in the second half of the movie. Absolutely. I mean, when you did your audio commentary, I remember thinking, um, what a fantastic plot this film has i mean it's just so clever the way they there's also quite a bit of foreshadowing that i didn't realize there's a couple of lines i can't bring them to mind at the moment but Mm -hmm. there's a couple of lines that occur later but again it's not in that sort of cheesy hollywood rom-com way where they repeat lines from earlier in the film it's very clever and it's quite subtle i think we mentioned this before do you remember i mentioned a thing called chekhov's gun to you not sure actually yeah there's a thing I can't remember exactly what it is, but Anton Chekhov wrote, if you're going to introduce a gun on chapter two of your novel or the first act of a play, the audience will expect it to be used four or five chapters later or by the second half of the play. Like if there's a gun above a mantelpiece, you know, and you can see it in plain view. I mean, a classic example of this, we're going to come to it very soon. Uncle Billy has got pieces of string tied around his fingers. 
and it's almost unnoticeable at the beginning. Oh, wow. But they then prove to be a vital part of the story as everything unwinds for George Bailey. Little things like that, you know, the ear infection, you don't think that that's going to be an important part of the story, but as we get to when George falls in the water, his ear's better. You know, it's like you say, things are introduced here right at the beginning that you don't know how important they're going to be until the second or third act. I think one of the foreshadowings, I'm pretty sure when they're having the conversation around the dinner table, George and, and his father, mm-hmm. I think his father said something like, oh, I'm I'm richer than Potter will ever be. Yes. And, and that's obviously what occurs at the end. Mm-hmm. And then um, we get the scene with Mr. Gower. Excellent. Um, yeah, Mr. Gower's a druggist. He's grieving the loss of his son and he accidentally prescribes some poison. What I love about this is is how wonderfully mature the 12-year-old George is, you know, and Mr. Gower starts to to hit him. And, of course, I don't know if you know this, but that was actually done for real, yes. apparently. And he actually um, caused the, the young actor's ear to bleed. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, amazing stuff. Yeah, the 12-year-old George says, oh, you know, Mr. Gower, I know you're upset because your son and everything. Mm. And, and he tastes it, and then he starts breaking down, and he, and he hugs poor little George. But H.B. Yeah. Warner is absolutely fantastic in this. He never played that sort of role previously. He first came to fame back in the silent age. He played Jesus in this big religious thing. I think it was called King of Kings. And, right. and ever since then, between the silent age running up to the 40s, he was always these more noble, sort of distinguished-type characters. Mm-hmm. So for him to play a drunk, he actually relished the idea. He is absolutely fantastic. I mean, as, as you see later on in the in the movie, we, we see him as George progresses and, you know, he's still in touch with him as well throughout his life. You know, he's one of those minor characters that's still quite important underneath the surface. Yeah. What are the other things? Yeah, we, we see uh, George obviously making a wish. Okay. I want to make a million dollars. You'll hear him say to people, I want to build things. And so that idea that he's an ambitious young boy, I think the next time we see him, is he maybe 21, something like that? Can you remember? Yeah, well, he goes to see his father, doesn't he? Because he's concerned Mm. about the poison in the bottles. And that's when we get introduced to Potter himself. But then the next thing is, is is, he's ready to travel. And that's the bit where he says, I'm going to build things. I'm going to be bridges and, you know, see the world. And Mm. again, there's a foreshadowing of this back in the drugstore in that first scene where he asks Violet or Mary if she wants coconut on her ice cream. Don't you know where coconut comes from? It comes from the tropics. You know, he's, he's got these lofty ambitions, even as a small child. He's got his dreams already. But I think the, so, dinner, ta- the dinner table is the scene prior to the school, isn't it, and the dance? Yeah. It's not the same night his father dies, is it? I'm not sure. Anyway, I'm hoping people have seen the film before. So <laughs> <laughs> they'll know. So... Uh, I can say they did a very good job of making James Stewart look 21. Whatever. I, I guess they just coloured his hair. I don't know. What would they have done? You forget that he, he plays like an 18-year-old going up to whatever, yeah. 45, 50, whatever he turns out to be. They certainly put grey in his hair towards the end. Right, yeah. That's, that yeah. bit is, is obvious that his, his hair's been greyed. But that's the thing with Jimmy Stewart. Because he was so tall and gangly, he had this appearance of a young youth. I think actually the end of the film, he's actually the same age as James Stewart. Pretty much. But I think James Stewart always looked, I guess, younger. Mm. And, uh, you know, it is quite funny when he's, when he's talking to his dad, his dad says, oh, what are you going to do after college? And, you know, you know that James Stewart's actually 40 and has just been in the war and everything. Exactly. But, uh, 
This is all about suspension of disbelief, isn't it? So. You have to. You have to with this. I <laughs> yeah. mean, in this day and age, they'd use CGI, like in The Irishman or something like that, to age people or make them younger. So, yeah, yeah. fair play to him. He did, he did it the hard way. Mm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think we meet Bert and Ernie around this. Now, let's just clear this up. Were the Sesame Street characters named after Bert and Ernie? Yes. I'm pretty right. sure I've read that somewhere that Jim Henson deliberately named them Bert and Ernie because of that. Could be one of those urban myths. But I have read something somewhere saying that. Because I saw a video that said they weren't. But yeah, uh, yeah I'm not buying that. It's a bit too much of a coincidence. <laughs> okay, where are we? Yeah, obviously there's there's a few scenes where you know he's getting together with Mary. There's the there's a the swimming pool scene. It's the walking walking home scene that I think is the important one. And and they see the old house and throwing the stones at the window. They're mm. both wearing clothes that they've borrowed from the gym because you know their clothes got soaked when the, the swimming pool opened. Mm. And you get this inkling, you know, that they are meant to be together. Well, he's still got these lofty dreams, hasn't he? So it's never going to happen. She's had this undying love for him since they were kids. And that is quite obvious throughout this. And, and we get introduced to Buffalo Girls, the song, and, and the, the scene where Mary loses her robe because he steps on the corner of her dressing gown or whatever, and she's hiding in the bush, and he does that great Shakespearean, my caboose, my lady, or whatever. Yeah, you know, he does yeah. All of that. And it's, yeah, just marvellous bit of acting. And, and that is the point, mate, where we find out that his father's died because mm. I think his brother or somebody comes running up in the car That's right. and says, you've got to go home. Quick question that kind of came to me. Mm. If George had managed to realise his ambitions, do you feel like Mary would have been up for sort of living in a different place or something uh, is there any sense that she pulls him back because i don't get that sense at all do you mary would have ended up marrying that other guy whose name i can't remember for the life of oh me. sam wainwright sam wainwright he, 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 yeah. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> he would have asked her to marry him he, he certainly had an interest in her and right. bedford falls isn't a big town you know eligible suitors weren't that that commonplace and i think that's probably what would because he was quite a successful guy you know with his own company and his own factories and things like that. So, yeah, mm. she would have ended up settling a, a home life with Sam Wainwright, I think. That's very interesting, yeah. Mm. But you don't get you don't get a sense that if her and George had got together, she would have pulled him back in the town. Because, obviously, one of the things about this film is that he's constantly getting pulled back, not just by circumstances, but I think by people as well. Yeah, what they suggest at the end, when George goes back, you know, mm. to see what Bedford Falls would have been like without him, they suggest mm. that Mary becomes this old spinster that never marries. <laughs> yes. It's, yeah, can we leave that for later? I know, but it's, I, that's it's a Donna, major problem I have. Yeah, but it's Donna Reed, who is, you know, possibly the most beautiful woman that Bedford Falls has ever seen. So there's no danger of that actually happening, mate. So, yeah, we'll talk yeah, about that yeah. towards Don't worry, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so his father dies, and then obviously George is about to go on a some kind of world trip before he goes to college. Yes, and, he's going to see and, places, yeah. So this is the first time that he's kind of held back. And I love the the look on James Stewart's face every time he realises hopes have been dashed. That kind of look of sort of dignified uh, despair. But you feel it yeah. as well. You yeah. feel it yourself because he's he's developed this character already within the first twenty minutes that you're fully invested in him, and every knockback, every gut punch you're feeling because quite early on in the movie you know he's a good guy and circumstances beyond his control forcing him to change decisions about his life mm. and you don't realize the same as he doesn't until the end just what an effect he has on people it's just these silly little things these minor little details mm. that just keep building up and building up 
That's right. Yeah, so the, basically they're about to dissolve the Bailey building and loan, so he has to stay on. Yeah. But the provision is that, yeah, sorry, the provision for keeping it is that he stays on to run it. So he doesn't go to Europe. I'll just go forward a little bit through the next bits. Then the idea, I think, becomes that Harry goes off. That's it. Harry goes off to college, and then Harry's going to come back and run the Bailey building alone. And George, after waiting for another four years, is going to finally get off. And then we get this scene, again, of just amazing acting from James Stewart. Harry comes back, but he's now got a wife. Yes. And he's been offered a job by his uh, father-in-law, I guess, isn't it? The good thing about this scene is just as the train's pulling in, Jimmy Stewart is clutching all these travel brochures in his hand. And he's like, this is it. You know, his dreams are going to be fulfilled at last. And Harry gets off the train and the Virginia Patton is there with him. And instantly you're like, hello, this is going to go wrong. If you haven't seen the movie, you know straight away, right, okay. And and as you say, he introduces his new bride and he was going to go and work for a father, you know, in Buffalo. And it's just the scene with the brochures and they're gone, gone with his dreams. Incredible, you know, it's just... Full of symbolism. Uh, Well, the whistle, you know, of the train departing, you know, and another dream gone has left the station almost he says it's the most exciting sound in the world isn't it the, the whistle of a, a steam train or a boat and the, you know he, he mentions all these things but they're also quite despondent of a train leaving without him yeah yeah something just flashed through my mind mm. sorry to bring the Beatles into this <laughs> I knew you wouldn't mention <laughs> you're gonna laugh aren't you? I didn't plan this but of course this, this almost happened in real life because you, you'll know of course the story of Cynthia Lennon uh, oh, missing the, the train uh, when the they went off to Spender. see the Maharishi. Yeah, yeah. And she actually said in one of the documentaries, oh, this is symbolic, you know, John's leaving, you know. <laughs> there you go. So, we, uh, we had that yeah, symbolism before. can happen in real life yeah. as well. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, as I said earlier, the, these looks of, that James Stewart gives, and the one I love here, he has this look of despair, and then it sort of turns into a smile as he greets uh, Harry's wife. Yeah. And it, it's that decency, you know, that, let's say it's realistic because it's a film, but it's, it has a realism element to it. Yeah. I mean, real cynics could watch this movie and say, well, he's just too nice. Nobody's that mm. nice. But mm. I think that's the whole point of the story <laughs> when, when we get to the end, you know, the whole reasoning behind it that he is just too nice. And I think the fact of in the opening scene with Clarence and everything, they've established that this is a fantasy. It's almost like priming the audience to say well there's stuff about this film that is realistic in the sense of the emotions and yeah. dashed hopes and all that but showing you that it's a fantasy helps you know because yeah. you can you can go along for the ride and you know it's a film and as you and i have said many many times films in these days were not made to be watched on video or dvd no. or for people to make podcasts about them 70 years later exactly. you know you watch them once so, twice if you were lucky yeah well, people would go back to the cinema in those days, wouldn't they? Exactly, because it would be on for the week or the two weeks run or whatever. So it would be like, yeah, I've, yeah. I've seen the latest Charlie Chaplin 17 times. Yeah, that I mean, I did that in the 80s, to be honest. There's a few films I watched more than once. Never yeah. did it. I don't think there's anything I've ever gone back. Apart from this movie, I always watch this on the big screen wherever I can when it comes out every Christmas. Oh, excellent. All right. The next thing I remember, obviously, George and Mary get together. We'll just skip forward a little bit. Can we just mention the, the scene before he goes back to Mary's is the party they have for Harry. And yeah. Thomas Mitchell playing a drunk is absolutely is, incredible because... Is that Uncle Billy? <laughs> Uncle Billy. Now, Thomas Mitchell was originally going to play the part of Potter. 
but because he's got this more sort of genial nature about him, he was perfectly suited for the absent-minded Uncle Billy. And there's this scene where they're on the porch for Harry's party and mum, Beulah Bondi, who played Jimmy Stewart's mother seven times in seven different movies, and even though she was only about ten years older than him, I think. I mentioned this in the documentary thing that I did, that Billy Mitchell, you know, wears my hat and he's staggering about on the porch because he's absolutely pie-eyed at this party. Mm. And as he walks off set, off screen, you hear him clatter into a bucket or something. He goes, I'm all right, I'm all right. He actually did that. Mm. He fell over. He Mm. genuinely fell over and shouted out, I'm all right, I'm all right. (laughs) And Capra kept it in the movie. I like it when directors do that. Mm. I like like the idea that that directors are open to that, you know a lot of these films they do have the supporting cast that you don't really realize how stellar they are yeah you know mr gower as you said earlier mm. a few other people yeah so george and mary get married and then we get uh, the next oh, i'm gonna call it a tragic scene <laughs> <laughs> they're just about to go off on their honeymoon funny little detail if you notice that ernie's about to take them to the airport there's yeah. a goat in the taxi yes uh, capra is of course italian for goat oh i didn't know <laughs> that half- Oh. I'm half Italian, so yeah, I should know that. Yeah. <laughs> Presumably that was an in-joke. I don't know what, don't know what else a, ca- a goat was doing in the taxi. But anyway, <laughs> George is, establishes Bailey Park, which is some um, modern flats, because um, Potter is also, apart from being a ruthless banker, he's also got these slums, which apparently is the idea that he, he's just overpricing these slums because the people can't afford. Or, he's tying them to mortgages and things like that as well, isn't he? It's... That always confused me, that whole, like you said, the whole banking system. How does it actually mm-hmm. work? It's a complete mystery to me. All I know is that he's, he's not a nice character and he's doing <laughs> something, that, you know, that's affecting the good people of Bedford Falls. Yeah, well, I know a little bit about it. I mean, basically, there's a run on the bank. If people who don't know what a run on the bank is, essentially, most banks run on a, a system called fractional reserve lending. And what that actually means is that what they lend out is much more than what they actually have. Yes. So the, the fractional aspect is the... Uh, I mean, some people say it's a tenth. Of course, in the old days, the, all these things were backed with gold. I mean, now they're not backed with anything. They're, yeah. they're essentially figures on a screen, and the powerful people can essentially create money out of nothing mm. because they can just inflate the money supply. Anyway, to cut a long story short, yeah, I didn't understand totally all this, all this stuff. Um, well, Jimmy Stewart puts it quite succinctly, actually, because he says... We don't physically have your money here, sir. You know, it's mm. your money is in his house. It's in her property. You know, and it, that sort of sums it up. Like you just said there, that physically the cash isn't there. Yeah. And Potter's offering 50 cents on the dollar. So he's obviously, they're going to get half of what half of invested. the value of what they've got. Yeah. yeah but it's better than nothing. You yeah. Know? So, yeah, I think it's actually at this point. I always thought this was later in the film. Mm. But George is 27 at this point and Potter offers him a job. Because essentially, the Bailey boys have been Potter's only... It's like a game of Monopoly where Potter owns everything on the board except like two properties. They've been a thorn <laughs> in my side for far too long or something, I think. That's it, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Potter offers George 20 grand a year yeah. for three years involving travel to New York and Europe. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the videos I watched has told me that 20 grand a year is now $270,000 a year. <laughs> Now, Scott, let's be honest. Would you not at least consider that overnight? I think I'd be. Sw- I think I'd be swayed. I mean, if my wife were to find out as well. Yeah. 
evil or not, you know, some some things take a priority. Two hundred seventy grand. Yeah, Incredible. and this is perhaps where I have a bit of an issue with Hollywood. This kind of, uh, I'm not going to take your money, Mr. <laughs> Potter. You know, I can see both sides. I just think perhaps you know he might have waited overnight or something. But of course, there's a fantastic shot where they shake hands, and then James Stewart looks as it looks at his hand. Oh yeah, as if he's you, you know, know it's just greasy and whatever. But deep down, I think because of this ongoing rivalry and this bitterness between George's father and Potter, he believes that Potter's responsible for his father's death because of all the worry. You know, we, we don't know too much about what's going on in his mind here, but there's a lot to it, this this deep-seated bitterness, I think. It's, it's just mm. the fact that, you know, he is a decent man, so, yeah, $270,000 isn't going to sway him. Let me make it clear. Again, I, I wouldn't... If I was in George's position, I wouldn't automatically take the job either. Mm. I think I'd be mulling it over because it's... Oh, Hobson's choice, isn't it? It's, well, there's uh, also got to be a catch there somewhere as well, knowing what this guy's like and what he's done previously. Yeah. You know, there's that old adage, isn't it? If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So, yeah, he's probably thinking, yeah, but he's going to have a hold on me. George is a dreamer. George wants to travel, yes, but at the same time, he doesn't want to be tied down to anybody else. So, mm. quite rightly, he's probably refused it. Is yeah, this the yeah. point where he says you're like the scheming little spider in your own web? Or something he says. I can't remember. There's a point where he describes him as a spider. The line I remember is, are you afraid of success? Mm. Which again, there's a few key lines in this script. Yeah. It's particularly towards the end, I think. I don't know. They really hit home. But um, yeah, I'm reminded actually, I don't know how familiar you are with Taxi Driver, but um, do you remember in Taxi Driver, Harvey Keitel's character, who's basically the pimp. Yes. Who's running uh, Jodie Foster, who's, yeah. whose character I think is actually 12 in the film. Mm. And... Um, I think they have an argument in the back of uh, De Niro, Travis Bickle's cab, and Harvey Keitel throws Travis a dollar. Yes. And says, oh, can you just forget about this? Mm. And this dollar's all screwed up. And, That's it, yeah, yeah. You know, and Travis Bickle never spends it. He kind of looks at it, and again, it, it symbolizes <laughs> greed and filth. And, yeah. Yeah, so I'm sure there's a bit of a nod there, because Scorsese, if nothing else, he's a film geek. He's a film fan, isn't mm. he? You know? Yeah. All right. So then I think we go forward another 10 years. You get World War II and you see what, what everybody does there. Sam Wainwright makes a, a fortune from plastics. That's uh, right, yeah. Essentially capitalizing on the war, let's be honest. I think the film kind of makes out that, how do I put this, that George missed out by not being in World War II. I feel like there's a little bit of subtle kind of pro-war propaganda. And Frank Capra did, of course, make the series Why We Fight. Yes, he did. I mean, we find out that Mr. Gower, Uncle Billy, I think, were selling war bonds. You know, they were doing their bit. Harry, Bert and Ernie all went off and fought on the front line. And they describe it that George fights the Battle of Bedford Falls. He was an air raid warden. That's right. So he does his bit, but he's still fronting the building alone. I think it's because of his ear infection. He couldn't actually go to the front line, wasn't it? He he couldn't actually Mm. take part. Mary's seen yeah. sewing and, you know, they're all doing their part. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, Harry shoots down two kamikaze planes and gets the gets the Medal of Honor. That's right, yeah. George and Mary have, how many children do they have? Four, three. They have a brood, anyway. Brood of children. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone always remembers Zuzu. It's the only one they remember. 
I also found out, yeah, <laughs> Zuzu was a was a make of uh, ginger snaps biscuits. That's why later George says Zuzu, my little ginger snap. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that was a little nod to that. <laughs> and then suddenly we're at Christmas Eve, nineteen forty-five, and watching this again, I didn't realise how long. Essentially, the last day of the film, isn't it? In, in the it, story, this is it? Yeah, this is the part. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, what comes next? So. Yeah, they're planning this party for Harry to come back as a war hero. Another nice thing about George, you don't sense even an ounce of jealousy, do you? No. About, no. no. It's at this point as well, we haven't mentioned her yet, that Violet turns up Mm. and she's going to go away, isn't she? So George gives her some money. Oh, yeah, I've forgotten about that. This this all takes place on Christmas Eve. She's going to go away because... She is known as the local town slut, basically. And she said, enough's enough, I need to make a fresh start. And he's always had, they've grown up, haven't they? You see her at the beginning at the drugstore at Gowers, you know, Mm. she's part of that little gang of Mary, him and Violet. Mm. And, you know, there was a scene earlier where she's being surrounded by all the local lads outside a bar and all this. And he's still doing the decent thing. It's like, go on. Take the money, just go away, make a new start for yourself, you know. And again, we, mm-hmm. see, we see the outcome of this towards the end. All right, then we get the scene. So Uncle Billy taunts Potter. Potter's got the newspaper and on the, on the front is about Harry Bailey. Yeah. And the line I remember is, you can't keep those Bailey boys down. <laughs> and uh, Billy is going to deposit eight grand. Again, uh, according to this video, 110 grand in today's money. That's the thing. You don't realise exactly how significant that money no. is until you put a proper value on it. Yeah, an equivalent value. Yeah. Is Uncle Billy's forgetfulness kind of established fairly early on in the film? Yeah. You say? As I say, yeah. the, you see the strings on his fingers with young George going in to see his dad after, you know, Gower has given the poison. Oh, right. And right. he tugs at one of the strings saying he's forgotten something. And then he does it a little bit later on. I think when there's the run on the bank that he's fretting with these strings on his fingers that he's got to do this, got to do that. So we know that he's absent-minded. That's set up right back in the time of Mr. Gower. Yeah, and of course there's a theme of sort of family members holding you back or or anyone holding you back, really, Mm. you know, because George is obviously so much sharper. But, uh, yeah, so the money, uh, Uncle Billy leaves the money in the newspaper, Potter's newspaper. At this point, again, I've got got a question for you. Would Potter really be that evil? (laughs) Is the idea that he's, I don't know, he's a lonely guy. You imagine he's probably estranged from his family. He doesn't have a wife. And Would he really be this bad? The missing piece on his Monopoly board is the building and loan, and he's got it literally in his hands. He's got the key to that in his hand, which is $8,000. If you can imagine that this rivalry has been going on for 40 plus years and he is a bitter and twisted old man whose only interest is power, is greed, is money, is controlling people. Yeah, I think it's totally believable that he would do it. Right. I mean, it even gets worse, of course, because then, then he... Does he call the police? Who does he call Cause he, to, to actually put out a warrant? For... He does. He calls the police to get him arrested, yeah. Yeah, because basically George pretty much goes begging to Potter, doesn't he? And then Potter taunts him and said, oh, you know, what have you... You know, this is the thing. I mean, he really is an evil character because he, 
not only is he taking the eight grand, he then starts taunting George and saying, oh, what have you done with the money then? You know, been whatever he accuses him of speculating with the money or whatever. He goes to call the police to accuse George of, you know, misappropriation of That's funds, yeah. etc. You know, it's really uh, rough stuff, isn't it? And then uh, George goes home, berates his family. He's got the daughter playing the piano. <laughs> playing oh, the same carol over yeah. and over, isn't it? I think I'd get annoyed at that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Even without all that's been going on in Jimmy Stewart's day. This is a great performance of a man actually breaking down. It's been building up and building up. And, you know, you get that sense that this is the final straw. What more can I do? I've given everything to everybody my entire life. Mm. And still, I cannot get a break. That's the feeling you get. Yeah, and that brilliant moment with Uncle Billy where they try and retrace their steps and then James Stewart just snaps. And because it's James Stewart, and because you oh. kind of know that James Stewart in real life seemed like a pretty decent guy as well, you really feel it when he goes, you know, where's that money, you old <laughs> fool? You know, it's just, you've really got to be a skilled actor to get that right, you know. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Maybe, just, maybe, maybe, I don't want any, maybe. We've got to find that money. I'm no good to you. Uncle Billy, look, I, do you realise what's going to happen if we don't find it? Listen to me. Do you have any secret hiding place here on the house? Some place you would have, some place you hide the money. You come over the whole house, even in rooms that have been licensed of that lost law. Listen, listen to me. Think, think. I can't think, think. anymore, George. I can't think anymore. It hurts. Where's that money, you silly, stupid old fool? Where's that money? Do you realize what this means? It means bankruptcy and scandal and prison. That's what it means. One of us is going to jail. Well, it's not going to be me. A lot of these old films, I mean, I love loads of old black and white films, but I feel like sometimes they, people will just suddenly lose their temper and it doesn't quite seem... In character, authentic. yeah. Yeah, it just seems like it happens a bit too suddenly, like this snap, but I think mm. James Stewart gets his absolutely perfect. I think a lot of it's down to the script in this as well. You know, if you get a right. combination of a, a very good script and a brilliant actor, you're going to get that, aren't you? Because... As you said, how often do you see Jimmy Stewart playing the bad guy? Very, very rarely, you know. I mean, I actually think this is a bit more authentic than uh, the dark stuff in Vertigo, because I I think you and I, when we um, reviewed Rope on your show, Mm. we talked a bit about Hitchcock. I can't quite put Vertigo... You know, it's it's, it's good, but... It's not one of my favourite Hitchcocks. It's not one of my favourite Jimmy Stewart movies. I can see why people like it. I can see why it's revered. It was one of those, um, the, the five lost Hitchcocks, wasn't it? The ones that were yeah. tucked away for several years. It was a bold move, you know, what they did in that mm. film. And I just didn't quite buy it. But yeah. in, in this one, I totally buy it. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Yeah. What comes next? And he goes to the bar. Oh, sorry. No, he, he berates the teacher over the phone. For, yes, for, for sending, for sending Zuzu home without a coat. I think the son is trying to write something out and he needs to spell frankincense and he shouts at him. That's it. The other daughter's playing the piano and it's really annoying. Even down to the fact that the, the knob on the banister comes off in his hand yeah. every time he comes up the <laughs> stairs. But he goes up and sees Zuzu who's in bed and a flower's dying. And you get the, the very important scene of him putting the petals in his pocket at this point. Yeah. And funnily enough, he doesn't have a go at Zuzu. So even in this moment of despair, you know, I guess yeah. she's the youngest, isn't she? And you feel that's like it. perhaps he's kind of her favourite, you know? Oh, yeah, that's, that's obvious, yeah. So even in his darkest hour, he still doesn't have a go at Zuzu. <laughs> he's still <laughs> nice to her. Do they go to the bar next? It's the bar now. It's yeah, uh, he, he goes to Potter first, 
and this that's the bit where he calls the police. It's at this point he calls the police. So he then goes off to the bar. And the teacher, uh, the teacher happens to be in the bar <laughs> and gives him a. That's Hollywood for you, mate. It's going to happen. <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it's Mister Martini. Um, We've met Mister Martini earlier in the movie. That's right. He, he gets one of the first houses, doesn't he, at the uh, Bailey Park? Bailey Park. Is it Bailey it. Park? Yes. Yeah, that's it. And of course, we see Nick, who's Martini's assistant. Yeah. And this is interesting that we see him about five minutes before we then see him again, which we'll get to in a second. Yes. And then George basically drink and drives, drives his car into a tree. Yes. And then enter Clarence. Clarence dives in the water, knowing that (laughs) George is such a decent guy that even in his moment of despair, he's going to dive in and save him. Yeah. Scott, could you take it from here, like the next bit? Yeah, well, basically what happens is they're both in this hut drying off their clothes and this is where the fantastical element comes in now you know this we've had hints of it throughout the movie you know from the commentary of clarence and the other angel you know talking about what's going on because basically this whole point up to this point has been a flashback this whole movie Mm. so now we're in real time and clarence has finally appeared is it clarence Oddbody? isn't it i think is his full name yeah it's odd body yeah yeah Uh, good name angel angel second class yeah (laughs) as2 and it's at this point that George Bailey sort of says, I wish I'd never been born. You know, and it's like, whoa, hang on, that's a bit of a sweeping statement there, you know. And Clarence looks up to the ceiling and says, okay, you know, it's been granted your wish that you'd never been born. You know, it's, he's this really charming little eccentric old man, or that's how mm. Jimmy Stewart's going to perceive him. You know, he's got a copy of, uh, is it Huckleberry Finn in his pocket yeah. that he's drying out by the fire? But there's this marvellous scene where the clothes are drying out and it gives him his wish and he says, right, you hadn't been born. And so the cut on George Bailey's lip has suddenly gone mm-hmm. and he can hear in his deaf ear. And yeah. he says, oh, it's the darndest thing. He says, oh, the water must have, you know, gotten in my ear. <laughs> Just to interrupt, there, there was a bit of foreshadowing, actually. I think the line was uh, when George begs him for the money, yep. he's got such a, a, a pathetic, the small amount of equity, something like, Five hundred dollars, I think. Yeah, he says almost like literally, you know, you're worth more dead than alive. You're, exactly, but, and that, that's why he goes repeats. to the bridge. Part of the reason he goes to the bridge, right? Because he realizes that he could actually make something financially if he actually dies. You know, there will be benefits to it. Again, very dark. <laughs> in Absolutely, what, in what essentially has been sort of fairly light-hearted. And, and it's at this point they go back to Martinis. Uh, they trudge through the snow after drying off their clothes. You know, is that very hilarious scene with the guy that's in the hut falling off the chair? You know, can't believe what he's what he's hearing. Clarence sort of reveals, "I'm your guardian angel," and he's sort of not believing. He's thinking, "Oh, it's a it's a Christmas Eve drunk, you know, that's latched onto me for some reason." Let's just humour him, sort of thing. We'll go to a bar, and it's, Martinez has now become Nick's, mm. and uh, there's, there's that line, isn't it, where, where they're sitting there talking, um, "What what do you want to drink?" And mm. he says, "I'll have a." A mulled rum punch or something, he says. Yeah. <laughs> I love uh, Nick's line. Now, listen, we serve hard drinks and we, yeah, <laughs> we hard serve liquor them fast for hard men, and we yeah. don't need any characters to liven the place up. Uh, you two pixies, get out of here. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, Clarence is talking about, you know, he's 290 years old or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, and he wants a flaming rum punch or something. Yeah. That's it, yeah. And, of course, um. Now we're going to this bit very much uh, 
influenced by a Christmas Carol. Because, of course, Scrooge is taken back by one of the ghosts to see, you know, what life was like. Exactly. Ghost of Christmas past. Yeah, we go back to some familiar locations, and and this is where we find out that Mary was the town librarian, I think, Mm. and and was a spinster. Mother has become a boarding house since Peter's death. She's actually had taken lodgers. That's right. We find out that the brother has died... During the war, he didn't actually save the lives of that boat by shooting down the kamikaze pilots, so like yeah. hundreds of other lives were lost, so he was never a hero. Was Uncle Billy in jail? I can't remember. There was something with Uncle Billy as well. Yeah, the Bailey building alone basically oh, went bust. Uncle Billy went to I an th- insane asylum. Yeah, he's institutionalised. Yeah. Mr. Gow went to jail for 20 years for poisoning that yeah. kid. Uh, no, and, and Harry actually died... In the sledging accident, he he went through the ice. That's right. Yeah, that's right. All um, completely unbelievable, you know. Because if you <laughs> you watched any time travel movies or whatever, you know, th- yeah. things aren't going to happen in that particular way. But can we get to the end? Because uh, <laughs> I sent you that video, that Cinema Sins, very funny video. So we'll get to that. Yeah. But, uh, they're only kind of fun nitpicks. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I think that, I think the librarian thing. Uh, I think that was a bit of a misstep. I think they could have changed that because I, I know we have to suspend our disbelief. But the idea that because he's not existed, this beautiful, nice woman can't yeah. possibly find a suitor. You know? Exactly. When Sam Why would she have married there? Sam Wainwright? Exactly. You know? Yeah, that's yeah. that's. Violet, I think the idea is that she's probably become a, a prostitute, isn't she? Pretty much, mate. Yeah, Bert and yeah. Ernie don't recognise him at this point because he bumps into both of them. The whole city has become this sort of sleazy. Pottersville, I think the idea. Yeah. I think Pottersville. Yeah, mm. I think the idea of it also is that everything is not only sleazy, but everything is commercialised. Yeah, I mean, if you've seen so, Back to the Future Two, it's exactly the same. This video kind of said it's that. Exactly yeah, exactly yeah, the same. Absolutely. Back to the Future Two. Yeah. Obviously, the house. I can't remember the name of that house. Is, oh, is obviously derelict. Yeah. What was their history with that house? I wasn't. That wasn't clear. Well, that's, him and Mary. That's the house they were throwing stones at after the swimming pool. Right. He thinks it's an ugly old house. And she says, oh, no, I think it's beautiful. One day I'm going to live there. She says it's going to be, you know. And they do end up moving in. That is the house they move into. But even on Christmas Eve, George mentions, I don't know why we had to move into this drafty old house anyway. And as I say, the the knob on the banister keeps coming off in his hands. It's still not quite right. You know, they still haven't, after all these years, made all the repairs and the renovations that it needed. And again, quite symbolic because it's about building from nothing. Yeah. You know, building something ugly into something beautiful although yeah as you said he he's never quite happy with the house you know the the angel in him likes it but the other side you know the the slightly bitter let's say or side of him doesn't so we kind of see all these characters that we've seen in this film i think george punches bert and then bert fires a gun at him yeah there's gunshots now at this point because He's been thrown out of Nick's, you know, he's, he's been brought to the attention of the cop now, you know, because mm. he's acting quite bizarrely and, and he's running through the town. It's that famous scene of him running through the town. And it is, it's, it's just like this nightmare scene of this town yeah. and, and the people that he knows and loves are completely unrecognisable to him. Yeah, it's just kind of a hell on earth, mm. isn't it? But again, you know, this, this film has themes. I think there's a bit of an anti-commercial theme going on there as well. Yeah. You know, the idea that everything is commercialised. Mm. There's so much going on in this film. It's fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> this is why we now, watch, it. Watching it last night, I feel like I think I'd probably seen it five or six times in the past. Hmm. I have a feeling we watched it a couple of Christmases ago, but uh, I felt like 
you know, it wasn't a fresh watch, but there was so much more. It just absolutely demands multiple Honestly, viewings. Mate, I watch it pretty much every Christmas. And as I say, mm. if I can, I go to a big screen and watch it on a big screen. Not mm. because it deserves to be seen on a big screen, because it's not that sort of a sweeping cinematic type movie. This is more of your drama type, you know, it doesn't deserve... It's not a John Ford Western, for God's sake, you know. It's not going to be something like that. I mean, I I think I watched it last year. I'm not too sure if I did. But the year before, when I put the documentary out, I watched it three times in the space of a week. So oh, wow. I, so I think I gave it a miss last year. And I've seen it pretty much every year since 1982. Wow. So how I many is if... that? I don't know. 40-odd, you know, times. I wonder if people reacted in the cinema much because it's a funny thing I hadn't, hadn't thought about this but people used to go to the cinema I think people used to react a lot more than they do now yeah you know yeah. I, don't, I don't think anyone does that anymore they're too busy like munching their popcorn or whatever yeah it's, I mean uh, we haven't mentioned I mean this wasn't a particularly successful movie on its release it had quite mixed yeah, reviews that's right and, and the famous story is that it became more popular in the mid 70s because the copyright lapsed Right. And what happened was it suddenly became this free-for-all. You know, anybody could show this movie wherever they wanted because there was no copyright on it. So, you know, it was shown every Christmas, every year, on every single channel in the States, and it suddenly gained popularity in the 70s. Mm. And there was even TV stations, because it was free, it didn't cost them anything, they were showing it three or four times a week in the run-up to Christmas. Mm. So it was it was oh, difficult wow. to get away from it. And so I first saw it early 80s when I was a young teenager and I was just formulating my love for Hollywood and classic movies and it was round about the same time that remember I said to you before on a previous podcast about those missing Hitchcocks that were mm. kept away from the public gaze for 20 odd years they suddenly got reissued round about the same time so it was a gold mine for me it was the start of the video age all those big classic movies that we, you know, you and I now love. You know, I saw Casablanca for the first time around mm. then. One of the very first videos that I bought was North by Northwest. Great time to formulate your viewing habits, mate, you know. And um, yeah. I can't imagine what the, the public's reaction would have been to this. It was probably just a run-of-the-mill, you know, just a Hollywood potboiler that was just churned out, you know, and it just happened yeah. to have a Christmas theme released at Christmas. Oh, well, it's, it's the first Jimmy Stewart movie for four or five years. I don't think there was any major buzz or any major excitement for it. Didn't win the Oscars, obviously, either. No. And uh, in fact, there was a poll that was done to find the best film that had never won any Oscars, and this was number two. Oh, what was number one? So, uh, yeah, if I said to you 1990s, would you like to hazard a guess? Say Goodfellas or something, wasn't it? No. won something, didn't it? It's a film that's very high. I think it might even be number one on IMDb's list. Shawshank? Yeah, Shawshank. I think Shawshank became popular when it went to video, which would only would have been like six months after it came out. But yeah, yeah. I don't think that was appreciated at the time. It found its home there. Yeah, I was working in the video shops then. It, it was flying uh, off the shelves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We should probably go to the end scene because there's, there's just so much to say about it. <laughs> so yeah, we get this sort of vision of hell on earth, as we said, this commercialized Pottersville. Mm. And then... Uh, I can't remember exactly. Oh, he goes back to the bridge and he says, please, God. Because, uh, yeah, that was another thing. The last time he'd said a prayer, he'd got punched by the teacher immediately. Do you remember? <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he says another prayer. And then uh, there's a lovely thing they do with the sound. When he says, I want to live again, when yeah. he says it again, mm. when he's back in reality, it's, it's a tiny change. I'm, I'm very much, I'm a musician. I'm very much a sound yep. guy. So I notice little things like this. Yeah, the, the and, uh, wind dies down. 
you, That's you right. lose that, and then the snow starts to fall again. That's it. And yeah. then the, the cut appears on his lip again. And then we hear the siren as the police car comes up. Is that right? That's I think it's at this that's point. That's it. Yeah. So Bert comes up and says, um, oh, your mouth's bleeding. Yeah. And again, just such brilliant. When, In fact, I'm going to put a clip of that in now. So mm. uh, there we go. Clarence! Clarence! Help me, Clarence! Get me back! Get me back! I don't care what happens to me! Get me back to my wife and kids! Help me, Clarence, please! Please! I want to live again! I want to live again! I want to live again! Please, God, let me live again. Hey, George! George! You all right? Hey, what's the matter? Now get out of here, Bert, or I'll hit you again! Get out of here! What the Sam Hill are you yelling for, George? You... George? Bert, do you know me? Know you? <laughs> you kidding? I've been looking all over town trying to find you. I saw your car piled into that tree down there, and I thought maybe you... Hey, your mouth's bleeding. Are you sure you're all right? What you... <laughs> My mouth's bleeding, Bert! My mouth's bleeding! Zuzu's pedals! Zuzu... There they are! Bert! What do you know about that? Merry Christmas! But James Stewart says, ha, 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 my mouth's bleeding, Bert. <laughs> Zuzu's no. petals are in the pocket. Yeah, there yeah. they are. <laughs> you see this scene endlessly around Christmas time as he's running through the town and everything has been back to normal. All the familiar bills. You've got, oh, bless your belt, baby, building alone. And the, the cinema is showing the bells of St. Mary's. And he's just shouting out to all the people and waving as he goes through the snow. And it's Bedford Falls again, which is great. Absolutely fantastic scene. Yeah. I don't know how many versions of A Christmas Carol would have been out, but the one I always go to is the 1951 Alistair Sim one, which, of course, 1951, I think this It's Wonderful Life is 46. Mm. It's a few years later, but very similar idea that he's kind of giddy with delight. And uh, Alistair Sim played that brilliantly in that film as well. It's that change, isn't it? Like we mentioned Mm. here, that change where Jimmy Stewart snaps. Yeah, Mm. Alistair Sim does that from gruff old Mr. Scrooge to, you know, mm. what what day is this boy? Go and get the turkey, the biggest turkey from the shop and all that. <laughs> and it's that performance, the Alistair Sim performance, that every other version of Scrooge, I think, is pretty much based on. And, of course, interestingly, the Scrooge character essentially goes from Mr. Potter to uh, kind of a George Bailey, there really. You go. Yep, it's all linked. Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> and, of course, uh, I couldn't leave this without mentioning Blackadder's Christmas Carol. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Where, of course, he goes from the nicest man to the worst. <laughs> Just genius. Exactly, yeah. Somebody, somebody had to do it. Yeah, yeah what a great idea. It. I'll put a link in the show notes because I, I, don't, I don't know how much Blackadder's travelled you know, out true. from yeah. the British yeah. Isles, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, he comes home and, I mean, you know, say what you like about feel-good films, but, you know, I still get a lump in my throat every time I watch this. Yeah. He comes home and suddenly, you know, the kids are there and, well, obviously, Bert's the first person, Bert, the friendly cop, yep. who, like, two minutes earlier was just shooting randomly <laughs> in the street. <laughs> then the family, and then, uh, obviously, Mary. And uh, I don't know, what can we say about this? What is there to say? There's two ways of looking at this ending. Right. There's the way that you and I look at it, which is an emotional, tear-jerking, lump-in-the-throat ending. Mm. Or as the critics 
may have seen it, or some of the critics may have seen it, is that thing called Capricorn, isn't it? That that's what they used to describe it as. That Frank Capra would have this over sentimentality, a bit cloying yeah. and a bit too much. It all depends on how you viewed the last ninety minutes. Yeah. To watch that as a standalone piece of like three minutes of cinema, you know, you can make your own mind up. But if you've gone through this roller coaster ride that George Bailey has gone through, I, I love it. This is part of the reason it's my favourite movie because no matter how many times I've seen it, the bit with Mr. Gower slapping the ear always makes me wince and it always brings a lump to my throat there. The reaction afterwards where he you know, realises what he's done. This yeah. segment. I get the same feeling. Having watched this movie 40 odd times, it's a powerful piece of cinema that can still give you that reaction, even mm. though you are so familiar with it. So, yeah, you know, the naysayers may say it's just a bit too sentimental, it's a bit too twee. It's a Christmas movie, mate, at the end of the day, and that's what they're all about, mm. isn't it? You know? Yeah. Oh, one thing we didn't mention, of course, in the sort of hell on earth version where he goes to Nick's bar, mm. uh, Mr. Gower comes in and he finds out, you know, that he'd been in jail yeah. and they humiliate Mr. Gower. They squirt him with that so, like, f- soda gun thing. Yeah. Yeah. That mm. gun thing they use to put water in yeah. drinks and they chuck him out the bar. Yeah. It's horrendous. George comes home and, uh, the basket of money is brought in. Uh, the first ever Kickstarter campaign is one of the videos <laughs> said. First <laughs> ever Patreon, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A couple of things about that final scene. I mean, I'm going to guess that anyone listening to this must have seen it. And if you haven't seen the film, then uh, you really should. There's a really interesting bit where they get a telegram from Sam Wainwright. Yes. He's obviously extremely uh, wealthy. And uh, I think it says, essentially, Sam gives him 25 thousand dollars credit is available and again yeah. going by what we said earlier that's probably well that must be that must be like a quarter of a million dollars yeah <laughs> what was he worrying about exactly. um, but there's a wonderful i want to ask you about this because there's a there's a look that george shoots to his wife just as he they read that out there's a couple of interpretations is it a look that's kind of almost brings home to george how successful sam is or uh, as some of the cynics, some of the videos I watched said, it might even be a look that says, uh, oh, shit, now I'm stuck in Belford Falls. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the look I'm talking about? Or is it how, the look that, he's, that? He's, he's looking over to, to Mary and saying, that's the guy you nearly married. Right. But why <laughs> does James Stewart look sad, though, when, they, when he hears about that? It's is it of... sad? I think it's just emotional. I don't know. I don't right. think, I think it's, it's just the fact that everybody whose life he has touched over the last 40 years, is suddenly in his living room, all of mm. them, even the maid is emptying out, you know, she says, I was saving this up for a, find me a good man or something. She yeah, says, yeah. <laughs> you know, Mr. Gower turns up emptying, like, you know, all this money and all this cash. The, the only one that isn't there is Potter, basically, which says mm. everything. That would probably have ruined it if Potter had turned up and had been this changed man. That would have completely ruined the ending there. I'm glad you said that because I was thinking that. Um, <laughs> have you seen the Saturday Night Live version of this? I don't think so. No, no. <laughs> it's basically exactly the same. But then they say something like, oh, Mr. Potter's got the 8,000. They all go to Mr. Potter's house and do like a vigilante. <laughs> like they kick the shit out of Mr. Potter. <laughs> and Mr. Potter gets out of his wheelchair as well. And he's not actually crippled as well. I it's believe very, that. I very funny. <laughs> very funny. Worth a look. Yeah, and then we get Heart, Heart the Herald Angels sing. And, uh, you know, I'm yeah. a, again, I'm a sucker for Christmas carols. Exactly. I, I remember loving yeah. them when I was a kid. I never quite understood why they're singing Old Lang Syne if it's Christmas Eve. 
Perhaps I'm yeah. nitpicking again. I love that um, song as well. As you said, you've absolutely nailed it on the head. You've got to have believed what's happened before. Well, not not believed that it happened, but bought into the way it's presented. Yeah, you've got to be fully invested in this man's story. Fully invested, yeah. absolutely. And I'm reminded, actually, of Jaws, because, uh, again, you and I are both huge fans oh, of Jaws. Oh, yes. Yeah, and one of the documentaries, when they proposed the idea that um, Brody puts the compressed air canister into the shark's mouth and then they shoot it someone said it may have been peter benchley said to steven spielberg that would never happen and steven spielberg said look if i've had them for two hours and they believe me they'll believe it they'll don't believe worry. this you know um, so. capra actually toned down the ending originally i read this somewhere after this whole scene is just about finished and everybody's given all the cash and they're singing the carols and all that lot george was going to fall to his knees and recite the lord's prayer right at one point right towards the very end but I think what happened was Capra realised that if you had such a blatantly religious finale, it wouldn't have the same emotional impact of all his friends rushing to his side to his aid like they do here in the last minute or so. Yeah. So he quite wisely took that away. You know. I think that was a good choice, yeah. to be honest. Can you imagine if that was the actual ending, or as we say, Potter turning up or whatever? And it's just right. It's been building up and building up and building up, and then bang, you've got it now, the perfect ending. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I was um, I was listening to a review of Rain Man. Oh right, yeah, um, yeah, which I I loved in my youth. Mm. Uh, again, I watched a couple of years ago. I'm not sure it totally holds up, but it's pretty good. It's not uh, bad. Hoff- we reviewed it a couple of years back on on Stinking Paws. It's still, oh, did you? Yeah. yeah, still quite good. Yeah. I mean, the two leads are fantastic. Yeah. But uh, I was listening to this review, and you remember when uh, I think Charlie Babbitt, who's Tom Cruise, mm. leaves Raymond, Dustin Hoffman on the train. Yeah. <laughs> the guy who was reviewing it said. I was just praying to God that that Raymond didn't rush off the train and go, Charlie! (laughs) (laughs) Thank God they didn't do that. They could have just killed the whole film. So, (laughs) yeah, I'm glad they make these kind of choices. (laughs) That's good. Yeah, so uh, we're at the end of the film. And then, like I say, um, Hollywood, they they kind of pour it on in this last scene, but in all the best ways. So Harry comes back. Again, I, I love that toast where he says to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. Yes. And again, if you listen carefully, I can hear like a little bit of a tiny voice break where he says the richest man in town. It just adds to the poignancy. Oh, yeah. Then we get the Mark Twain book. Yes, he's there in on the, the basket table. of yeah. money. Yeah, and the bell ringing. Yeah, and again, a lovely bit of, um, I don't know what the word is. It's going to say surrealism, but obviously <laughs> most of this film is surreal. But have you noticed that when, when they pick up the book, Zuzu immediately turns to the page that's got the message from Clarence. Yeah. How did Zuzu know which page to go to? But well, uh, Again, you're fully invested. It's Spielberg absolutely. and Jaws, mate. You know, you're going to believe it. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. So we got to the end of the film. Not to scupper everything, because I love this film. Mm. I sincerely love it. <laughs> but uh, it's a couple of videos I watched. Mm. And... You were saying that there is a couple of different viewpoints of that last scene, one that it's like purely inspirational and one that it's a, it's a little bit too much. Yeah. There is actually a third interpretation okay. of it. I'm going to put a video in the show notes, and it's called It's a Wonderful Life's Ending is a Living Nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> now, bear with me. Okay. Um, don't ruin no, this it, film. Please don't ruin this film. I won't. I won't. <laughs> Yeah, perhaps I won't say too much about it. I'll just <laughs> say to the listeners if they're interested. No, it's the idea that... A couple of things. If if I was going to nitpick myself, I'd say, of course, Potter does get off basically scot-free. Yes. And uh, 
you'll know, of course, what the Hayes Code is. Yes. Am I right in saying that the Hayes Code was basically an agreement that films had to be, I don't know, kind of morally decent and that the wicked had to be punished? Yeah, the the villain could never win. I, I know where you're going now with this, of course, but... Is he the winner? I mean, they've declared that George is the richest man in town, so he's yeah. he's, he's not the king off his throne, basically, mate. At the end of it, so you know, yeah. perhaps Potter hasn't won. All right, Potter's still yeah. there. Potter's still a rich man, but at this point now, people have realised who he is and what he's all about. So he hasn't won at the end of the day, mate. Yeah, if you look at it that way, he was always the loser, wasn't he? Yeah. What was the other thing? Yeah, and the idea really is that George is now stuck in Bedford Falls. And uh, I think it's worth thinking about that. I mean, this is such a thought-provoking film that, mm. you know, I don't think it scuppers the film at all, really, just to think about that. But my counter to that, of course, is that now he's got this 25,000 credit from Sam Wainwright. <laughs> he's sitting on a quarter of a million dollars. He can do anything. Money. He can go wherever he wants. You know, he can pack that yeah. suitcase and do that travelling that he's been that just avoided him all these years. Yeah. But then, you know, again being the richest man in town, you know, both emotionally and almost financially. Has he got this need to travel? Has he got this need? Everything he needs is there within those those four walls, you know. Things that he may have overlooked or neglected are actually vital, you know, like mm. family, like friends. Am I right in thinking there was a sequel to this? Am I not right or that not? That I'm aware of. There was a remake. Oh, was a remake. I believe, right, right. or there's been sort of variations of it, like Nick Cage did the film called The Family Man, and as we said, we've seen elements of it in Back to the Future 2 and other movies. Oh, right. Yeah. I felt like there was a. they did one about Clarence, actually, or perhaps that was proposed. They'd been planning to make a, a sequel in 2015, actually, oh, but no, presumably please. it hasn't come off. Yeah, would you prefer if they just left it alone? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That is the simple answer to that, mate. Yeah, leave yeah, the bloody yeah. thing alone. Why would you? It just baffles me and it annoys me sometimes. You know, people feel the need to do it, you know. Mm. Um, no. All right, I would like to just talk about the Cinema Sins video. So there's a channel on YouTube called Cinema Sins and they do a series called Everything Wrong With. And you could kind of tell from the tone of it that they're not actually saying that these films are bad or anything. That They actually love it and... And in fact, on, on some of the videos I've seen, they'll actually take a sin off because he'll, he'll say something like, oh, let's face it, this scene is so amazing. I'm going to take a few sins off. You know, so <laughs> it's done. In, it's just done in the spirit of fun. It's kind of yeah. like, um, you know, I, I always like this kind of movie mistakes and bloopers things like, mm. you know, the fact that, you know, the famous wristwatch in the in the chariot race in Ben-Hur. Yeah. And someone's wearing jeans in Gladiator. That's I love it. all that stuff because yeah. it, it doesn't detract from the film. You know, <laughs> just a couple of things they point out is that, um, when Clarence is presenting this world to, to George, it gets to a ludicrously long point where George still thinks that he might be imagining or, you know, <laughs> you know that, that things might be normal, you know? Yeah. He's met all these people and uh, he's seen all these things and, and he goes back to the old house and he's still thinking, oh, hang on, I live in this house. You know, it's that kind of thing. <laughs> so <laughs> that was quite funny. I think he, he doesn't um, actually get convinced until he sees the gravestone, isn't it? I think is the is the bit that turns him, isn't it, where he sees his brother's grave? Yeah, but I think he's even still protesting then, isn't he? <laughs> saying, no, Harry's a war hero. You've got it wrong. <laughs> You're true. <laughs> so that was quite funny. And um, this thing about, you know, the the, the butterfly effect, the, the idea that, you know, mm. millions of little things happen yeah. that cause millions of other things. And, um, you know, the old maid thing does, does bother me slightly, but yep. there's all the other things, like uh, they said, it's quite funny, Harry dying on the on the sled in the ice 
Yeah. He was like, well, hang on. Was was Harry playing with his uh, imaginary older brother's exactly. friends? Exactly. Yeah, did, no, did his imaginary <laughs> older brother egg him on? <laughs> yeah. That's why we don't look too deeply into things. Exactly. Like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to dwell on that because I absolutely love this film. Is there any closing comments you'd like to make or have we have we done it? No, I think we've covered everything. You know, if anybody hasn't seen any other Capra stuff, I would certainly push them towards it. Also, if this is your only experience of Jimmy Stewart, go and watch Harvey. Go and watch all these movies we've been talking about today. Mm-hmm. Leave Vertigo a little bit till later in your viewing, possibly. <laughs> but certainly have a look at Rear Window and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. Would you say this was the quintessential James Stewart performance, or is he... Has he got more than that going on, maybe? I think it's the turning point in his career. Right. He's got this pretty successful career up to the time he goes to war in 1940, you know, and he finishes that on a high by winning the Oscar for Philadelphia Mm. Story. He comes back, and he then what he then becomes is the Jimmy Stewart that I think most people know, most people Mm. remember, most people love. But by all means, go back and look at Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and Philadelphia story. He was quite a good song and dance man as well, if you look at some of the other stuff that he did, yeah. I mean, he was acting right up to the 70s as well. You know, he was in John Wayne's last movie in 76, The Shootist. He was in uh, Airport as well, Airport 77. exactly, you know, and he made Uh a couple of TV movies after that. He he was even a voice in a cartoon in the 80s, American Tale, Five All Goes West, the second one, he's in that, he plays the sheriff, which I think is his last credited film appearance. I think a lot of people's experience of Jimmy Stewart is only this movie, because they see it every year at Christmas. Mm. So please go back and look at more Jimmy Stewart and more Frank Capra. There's there's a wealth of entertainment out there, guys, if you haven't seen it. Yeah. All right, and just before we finish, so can just tell us the podcasts again, and are they available in all the usual places? I was going to say, it's easier to point out where they're not available as to where they are available right. I think that as, as you point out you know where all good podcasts are you, you will find the Stinking Paws Real Britannia R-E-E-L Britannia Rainbow Valley and the official Talking Pictures TV podcast Brilliant and if you're up for it you'll 100% be appearing on Film Gold again in the future I'm looking forward to it I, as I said to you off air mate sort of running four podcasts <laughs> you know from start to finish producing, scripting editing all that lot as much as I enjoy it being a guest where I haven't got that responsibility yeah, is nice. a real pleasure for me because it doesn't happen very often. So, yeah, please expect me to be sitting in this chair a little more often. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I've been kind of Lennon head for hire recently the last couple of months. <laughs> I've done a lot of guests. Yeah, they are. They're, yeah, lots It's, of it's nice to relax a bit, isn't it, and still talk about the stuff you love without the responsibility of putting it all together. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so thanks for being on the show, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you very much, mate. Goodbye. Goodbye.
just like that. The fool flew all the way up here in a blizzard. Carry on about your banquet to New York. Oh, I left right in the middle of it. As soon as I got Mary's telegram. Good idea, Ernie. A toast. <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. <laughs> Christmas present from a very dear friend of mine. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. Attaboy, Clarence. 